This is To See Each Other, where we explore how people are reshaping small-town America and why writing it off as Trump country hurts us all. I'm George Gale, and today we visit Iowa. Iowa's more than presidential caucuses and cornfields. It's also where the fight for clean water and against corporate greed is engaging Iowans across generations. think about rural America, one picture that pops in our mind is agriculture. The family farm, close-knit communities, the pride of growing food for your family and the world. That way of life is hanging on by a thread, and it remains a live fight. And the fight itself has become so extreme and cut so close to the bone that rural communities are now not just fighting for their dignity, but for the most basic human need. that supply water to Des Moines, the state's largest city, contain record levels of nitrates. Water. Water flows between urban, suburban, and rural. It flows across race and even across partisanship. It connects all of us. And most of us believe the government should ensure the safety of that water. Even diehard conservatives see water as a place where we need government to show up. When it doesn't, it's due to corporate greed. No matter the reason for the unsafe water, lead, toxic pesticides, fracking, or in the case of Iowa, hog manure, the actual underlying cause is greedy corporations and the politicians they bought off. It's really that simple. And it's a crisis that's playing out across the country, from Flint to Standing Rock and beyond. Iowa is one center of that crisis. In the late 80s and 90s, corporate pork producers slowly started taking over the state. In 1995, Iowa's then-governor, Terry Branstad, signed a law that allowed for corporate ownership of hogs and swung open the floodgates for factory farming. Since then, Iowa has become one of the biggest suppliers of pork to the world. There are now nearly 10 times as many hogs in Iowa as there are people. Have you ever been to a corporate hog operation? You can smell it from miles away. This isn't the smell of a barn or even of animals. It smells poisonous. You won't see workers tending to animals, but completely automated feeding operations, with hogs all but stacked on top of each other. They are not running in the field like the ones on the farm next to where I grew up in Indiana. At most corporate hog operations, the pigs rarely leave the containment center, but their manure does. Iowa's 26 million hogs are producing as much waste as 45 million people. 750 of the state's waterways are polluted. Those waterways have streamed into the Gulf of Mexico, creating a toxic dead zone where no marine life can survive, threatening the Gulf's seafood industry. Locally, the contamination is leaving Iowans at risk of bladder, ovarian, and thyroid cancer. It means newborns face an increased risk of spina bifida and cleft palate. Just to have safe drinking water, the city of Des Moines has had to install the largest nitrate removal system in the world. And despite all of this, the government still hasn't done anything to protect the waterways. In fact, it's done the opposite. In 2017, Iowa State Legislature actually forced a $1.2 million reduction to its Department of Natural Resources. 
Nationally, in 2018, the Trump administration cut the EPA's water monitoring budget by a third, eviscerating water quality enforcement. Throughout all of this, People's Action Affiliate, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, has been fighting to protect Iowa's waterways and everyday Iowans. Even since before pork production ramped up in the 90s, they have been striking at the root of the problem, the state putting corporate agriculture's interests ahead of people and the planet. I never really thought about water or if it was clean or not. Nobody trusts our town water. Uh, I mean, people give their pets bottled water because they just don't feel that it's safe. I never heard of any water pollution or anything like that. Never heard of wells being polluted by hog crap or anything like that. None of it. Oh, wow. Our water is not at all clean. The Raccoon River is one of the most polluted rivers in the whole state. And that's where I've always gotten my drinking water from. People just don't realize what's going on with their water. Everybody needs clean water to survive. It becomes a, I guess, a public health issue. Water, which we drink every day in even moderate amounts, is killing us over time. Those were some of the folks from Iowa CCI. You'll hear more from them later. When I was cutting my teeth as an organizer in Southern Indiana, a couple of us got invited to a National People's Action gathering of organizers from across the country. It was the first time I'd been around that many organizers. There's a lot I remember from that meeting, but most memorable were these folks from Iowa. They seemed to always be jumping around or standing on chairs when they told stories. And they were talking about a pitched battle between family farmers and corporate agriculture. It felt epic. Those organizers were from Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, or Iowa CCI. And one of the organizers was Hugh Espy, now the director of the group. When you think of Hugh, picture Robert Duvall, a bit thinner, wearing a baseball cap and an Iowa CCI t-shirt. Duvall's playing a community organizer saddled up to the bar telling stories, true stories, about taking the fight to the doorstep of those who started it. Here's Hugh on the fight in Iowa and how the fight for water and against greed has brought together everyday Iowans, from urban to rural, and from the state capital of Des Moines to the tiny town of Adair, population 781. From like the mid-90s, maybe you start out with a couple hundred of these factory farms. Now, we've got over 10,000. And just in terms of the number of hogs, at that time in the mid-90s, we had 12 million pigs across the state. Now we have over 26 million. The state of Iowa has 3.1 million people that produce waste every day. Those pigs produce the waste of about 70 million people, and it's spread on farm ground. And it ends up in our creeks, rivers, and streams. So that's how it's exploded. Pig-wise and pig-shit-wise, it's exploded. Yeah, can you say a little more about what it means to families in a county, and especially close by when one of these factory farms comes in? It divides people against people, for one thing, because there's somebody that says, well, I can do it. So I'm going to put up a building. And it's just like, yeah, but what are you doing to the rest of the community? And basically what it is, it's like, no, it's about me. It's not about the community. It's about me. And why am I doing it? Because I can do it. Uh, so it, it, first and foremost, it, 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 it pits people against people. Secondly, for the neighbors that are living around it, there's going to be um, the stench. And it's like, it's not a smell. It's not like an old barnyard smell where, you know, a straw and bedding, you know, with horses and all that kind of stuff. And that's not that at all. It's like, this is a stench. And, and, and the fumes and what you're smelling is the hydrogen sulfide and ammonia or what you're taking in. And those are harmful to your health. You don't have to be in the building to suffer 
health effects from the fumes, the hydrogen sulfide and ammonia, uh, the air pollution that comes off of factory farms. So there's that. And then the stench, and it's like you're become either a, a, a prisoner in your own home or you're driven out of your home because of different times during the year. If I'm spreading manure, it's like, oh my God, can't have a picnic, can't put clothes out on the line. You got to shut your windows. You can't do this. You can't do that because it's uh, um, a fume that just, um, it's hard to explain. It's like kind of like if you're stuck at a like a dirty old gas station. Sorry, I'm not trying to bust on gas stations, but if you're in a dirty old gas station in a dirty old bathroom and you're locked in there and there's fucking piss and shit in there and that you can't get out, it's like, that's what it's like. You're trapped. You're trapped in there. So it's that. Plus, then there's the constant truck traffic. Trucks are bringing feed. You know, you got to bring feed to it, you know, because hogs eat a lot. So you got to bring, and you know, you just don't grind it there. You know, it's like the company that owns it is bringing in all these big semis. So there's constant traffic up and down the gravel roads, you know, and then and the safety issues. And then your roads get torn up. And then the county uses public dollars to fix roads that the corporation's tearing up. I said, well, that's not right. We should send them a bill. They should pay for that. If there's, you know, road. So there's damage to roads. There's the constant truck traffic. There's the noise. There's the, and then there's the manure. I'm not even getting to the manure, getting into your water and polluting things. Why aren't more elected standing up to these factory farms? Because they're chicken shits. They're chicken shits. Because they're afraid. You know, and we say that, um, some of our biggest opponents on this are not the Republicans. They're the establishment Dems that are chicken shits, that are afraid to stand up to the Farm Bureau and the economic power of the Farm Bureau and the commodity group, the corn growers and the soybean growers and the, the pork producers and the beef boys, the beef boys, all that. They, they have a lot of power, you know. And so, you know, and they've been used to having a lot of power and calling the shots, especially in rural areas. How do you fight that? What we're trying to tell people is like, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we can reimagine our future. But as we do that, we're going to have to fight. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we're, you know, we're not going to all come together around a campfire and hold hands and sing songs and feel good about each other. It, I mean, you can do that, but that's not going to, that's not going to get any kind of structural change that ultimately we have to take on and take down corporate power. Corporations have used that be nice, Iowa nice crap. All that. And by the way, I'm from the Midwest. I'm not from New York and I'm not from Los Angeles. And it's just like, I hate that Iowa nice stuff because it's used against us. It makes you feel good, but it doesn't solve anything and it allows corporate power to continue marching on doing what they want to doing and just tearing our communities apart. What's it mean when like, uh, family farmer or, you know, somebody in a rural community finds Iowa CCI and moves from being completely alone in this fight to being on part of a team. They've reached the promised land. I think people find community and a sense of family by being part of an organization like this of, you know, that, you know, kind of uh, has a similar analysis about a particular issue. And then we learn other things about other issues and we meet other people around the state that, may not look like us and they may not talk like us and they may not speak the same language. And it's like, well, hell, they kind of have issues too that were kind of connected. So I think it's kind of finding solidarity and mm -hmm. solidarity is important. We got to stick together and we got to stick up for each other. 
And I stick up for you and you stick up for me and let's fight for somebody we don't know. And let's fight for people we do know. And let's fight for other people. You know, maybe it's like rather than finding your community in your neighborhood, in a rural community, you're finding your community, you're defining neighborhood differently. Another reason I'm taken by Iowa CCI, other than its commitment to the fight, is its members. Because visually, if you came into a meeting, you could think you were at a Trump rally. But CCI members are the ultimate stereotype busters, a group with a lot of older rural white folks deeply devoted to racial and economic justice. Larry Ginter is one of those members. He's a retired third-generation family farmer who lives in the town of Rhodes, Iowa, and has been a member of Iowa CCI since the early 2000s. One of my favorite memories of Larry was when National People's Action took over the offices of the Federation for American Immigration Reform, an anti-immigrant organization based in D.C., He was part of a Latinx, black, and white leadership team. And it meant a lot to people to have an older white farmer with his Wranglers, Western shirt, and cowboy boots stand up with tears in his eyes for the rights of immigrants, documented or not. When we visited Iowa, he shared with us his story about what it's been like to have a way of life and the health of his community get pulled apart, and how he and others are working to reimagine rural Iowa. When I was a kid growing up and when I was farming full-time, the neighbors would come in, we'd shell corn together. You know, we'd pick corn on the ear. We were were working side by side, getting the corn shelled and putting it in our own bins or whatever. You're getting down in the soil, walking the beans, walking the corn, pulling out weeds, the manual labor being out there, plowing up the ground, you see the the birds flying in and getting the grubs on the ground when you're plowing up the stuff, you know, smelling the rich, the, the rich soil. I mean, there's nothing like little pigs running out there behind their mother, laying in the grass or laying in the straw, whatever it is. Okay, that's, this is fun to watch them, okay? Once you get the dirt under your fingers, under your fingernails, and once you see the stuff growing, and you see the new crops coming out of the soil, there's nothing like it. But let me give you a history about what life was like growing up in the 40s under the Roosevelt New Deal program, because it, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling what it was like back then and what has happened now. We were a fully diversified family farm. We had cows and we had dairy cows, milk cows. We had chickens and we had hogs. We rotated our pastures. We had rotation pasture. We had two apple trees. We had a cherry tree. We had big gardens. We had grapes and we had strawberries. And mom and dad butchered and they canned the beef and canned the pork. We'd have fresh milk. Uh, We'd have all these kind of things that we, I just don't have any more now. But anyway, it was, it was a wonderful time. Family farmers were prospering under the Parity New Deal program. And the small towns were prospering. I remember as a young kid going into roads and on Saturday night and the streets in the summertime, it was packed, car to, bumper to bumper, car to, you know, they were lined up on both sides of the street. Band concert night, you know, and we've got our groceries there. We've done all of our, most of our shopping there in roads. We had a bank. We had two gas stations. We had a post office. 
a small telephone company. We had a hotel, restaurants, uh, feed stores, lumber yard, four churches, school, the whole shebang. And the, every town was like that. It was just prospering. The money flowing from family farms are flowing into small towns. And of course, further than that even, but anyway. It's more or less a bedroom town now. We've got a post office, we got a bar, we got a repair shop, but everything else is gone. We've only got one church left. We have no school left. That's all that's left of roads. We did, we got a fire station there. We had a wealthy farmer. Uh, they had a, a building program last year. People donated and we got a new fire station which is really a wonderful thing. And still the hardworking folks there. I mean, it's, like I said, it's a bedroom town, but it's, it's, it's a remnant of what it was before. Let me talk to you about how, how I raised hogs, okay? I turned my sows out morning and night. Got them up in the morning, turned them out, they came back in and laid down. And I had straw in there for the pigs and for the sow, okay? Confinement... It's all concrete. They're in those buildings. If they're like, they have what is called gestation stalls, that's when the sow's going to have it's three months, three weeks, three days before they can have a pig. They're in confinement until they have their pigs, and then they go and put them in a pharaoh house. Okay? And they're in there for maybe two or three weeks. Then they go back to the gestation stall. Okay? My operation, after those sows had their pigs after two or three weeks, I would take them out of there and pair up maybe perhaps three or four sows in the one pen and with their pigs. And I have a little area so the pigs could get away from them and eat in there. And then they could go outside on the grass. Okay. That's the difference. One is next to nature, doing what they got to do in the alfalfa field or grass or, or timber ground or whatever. They're out there rooting and playing and, and playing in the in all the it's, I mean, they're, they're, their life force, they, they haven't had their life force destroyed. Growing up, and when I took over the farm in 65, and all the way up until the 80s and early 90s, I never heard of any uh, uh, water pollution or anything like that. Never heard of wells being polluted by hog crap or anything like that. None of it. But when they let the big boys in, it wasn't more than a couple years. We started hearing trouble of a manure spill here, you know, poison wells, whatever. But the whole system is just out of control. And we're, we, we're flooded with manure, and that now they're saying directives coming down. You can't find them. You can't stop a permit, blah, blah, blah. We're flooded. Our, our, we got 700 some polluted waterways, and it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to dawn on our fearless leaders like the Farm Bureau and the commodity groups and governors and state legislators. They don't seem to understand the link between these dangerous pathogens and human health. Right now, the family farmer has no market. There's still cow-calf operations, don't get me wrong. But there's no hogs, there's no chickens, and there's no dairy. It's being destroyed. When you lose a farm, it's like losing a part of the family. 
you feel like you've let everybody down okay and that's that's what's going on now dairy farmers are losing their you know they're losing their farms and so then there's suicides i think we i think they said there was four or five hundred suicides across the country in the lot from 2012 to 2019 or something like that their suicides has probably happened but they don't know they can't prove it but it's like you're losing it's like you're losing a family member you're losing you're, you're being disconnected from the soil something that's been ingrained in you for years your hard work everything on my situation i was able to uh transfer and rent it to a good guy and then i worked part-time with another neighbor but being part of an organization being part of late the laboring people the immigrant family situation all the all the stuff that progressive get involved in has helped me out so much it's, i mean it's just if i wasn't for cci i would be lost i have i have that connection okay there are a hell of a lot of people that don't have that connection and i i feel sorry for them there's a lot of farmers out there that don't do not have that connection i'm 80 years old but i've got nothing to goddamn lose now and it's very important we all need to take that attitude we've got nothing to lose but ourselves our soul and this precious earth and our communities and so we got to fight together sign up for one another and take them on that's all there is to it larry always fills my heart and gives me hope now to go up against corporate ag and win the fight for clean water you're going to need to build a big coalition it's got to be urban and rural multiracial and intergenerational fortunately the next generation is in the fight Lakeisha Perkins and Emma Schmidt are two young organizers working alongside Larry and Hugh with Iowa CCI. Lakeisha is in Des Moines where she grew up and Emma lives deep in rural Iowa where nobody can touch anything but bottled water. Both understand that water is life. Here's Emma. I grew up in Rockwell City, Iowa. It's actually kind of in between two large slaughterhouses. We've got Tyson and Sarah Lee in Storm Lake and then um, Prestige in Wright County and I'm right in the middle there. As a kid, I really didn't know anything about agriculture. I mean, even though it's a small town and we're an agriculture you know, county, nobody really talked about it. I mean, I was probably 20 before I realized that the long white buildings that you saw all over the place were factory farms. I didn't realize they were filled with thousands of animals until I actually started looking into it because it's not an obvious thing. They don't just say, hey, we got 5,000 hogs in here right now. They, you know, they try and conceal it as much as possible. I'm Lakeisha Perkins. I was born and raised in Des Moines. We've lived in or near this area since forever. I didn't really know anything about agriculture, but always grew up thinking, I want to be a veterinarian. Iowa State has a huge ag college. So I actually started off as an animal science major, but I ended up switching to agriculture in society, which looks at agriculture using a sociological perspective to see how agriculture has changed over time and how that has affected different groups of communities. I learned a lot about how a lot of farmers have been pushed out due to this, like get bigger, you know, get out mentality. 
I've watched my town just deteriorate. It's the, you know, the face of struggling rural America. We have lost our businesses. Our schools have consolidated multiple times. We lost our grocery store this year. So we have to drive 50 miles just to get food. A lot of that is because the farm system that we have is not what it used to be. Everything is, you know, one farmer raising 5,000 hogs instead of 10 farmers raising 500 hogs. It made me angry that in animal science and in corporate ag, they pitched that this idea that we're feeding the world and we're just doing what we need to do and that there is no other way that's going to work, while also ignoring the fact that there's still a ton of people who are incredibly food insecure in Iowa, in the nation, (laughs) in the world, Uh, and that farmers are suffering from this, consumers are suffering from this, you know, and there's farm workers who are treated, you know, like crap. Uh, I mean, corporate ag abuses immigrant workers and then basically sits by when ICE shows up and watches them all get taken away. Um, And that was infuriating to me. Nobody trusts our town water. Uh, I mean, people will give their pets bottled water because they just don't feel that it's safe. Normally, our, you know, city water does operate within guidelines. We did have a period, oh, two years ago where we were all drinking water for a month that was not safe. And then we got a letter that told us, hey, just so you know, this happened. (laughs) It's like, oh, great. Wish uh, wish you would have told me that before. This year, we found out that our water system needs to be upgraded. And so they've jacked up our property taxes to pay for that. And uh, rumor is they're going to double our water bills as well, just to be able to afford to give us safe, clean drinking water. I never really thought about water or if it was clean or not. Started learning about it and was like, oh, wow, our water is not at all clean. The Raccoon River is one of the most polluted rivers in the whole state. And that's where I've always gotten my drinking water from. I never knew any of this, never thought to look into it. And now my family has been drinking this, you know, forever. I mean, like I learned from the Dakota Access Pipeline protest, water is life. We all need it. We as a species cannot survive without it. Factory farms and agriculture are number one polluter of water in Iowa. And as a result, Iowa is the number two polluter of the Mississippi River, which obviously runs down to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and contributes to that. So it's not just Iowa that we're worrying about here. It's, it's, it's everywhere. This is our future that we are fighting for. Young people have so many newer, fresher ideas, um, and we just can't be afraid to speak up and take action and fight back against the people who are threatening our future, because that's what's happening. And what it's going to take is for us all to find the confidence to stand up and fight against them and speak against them and take any consequences that it comes with that, um, because there's going to be consequences, but it's going to be worth it because in the long run, Like I said, this is our future we're fighting for, and we have to do whatever it takes. So one more thing that I want to add is especially for young people of color like me, um, particularly women, we are always struggling and fighting 10 times harder in this world to get to the places that we want to be. And a lot of times our voices are left out of conversations or we're talked around or, you know, people are making solutions for us. This is our time. And in this moment, like we have to push back against that. Racism is not, is not going away. It hasn't gone away. And in many ways, because of our current political establishment, things are getting scarier, (laughs) much scarier.
And so for people of color all over, young people of color like me, we just, we need to be loud and let our righteous anger out because it is righteous. We have a right to be upset um, and we should let that out. I love that these young organizers inspired by others across the country are building together with older folks to make the world safer for all of us. The kids are gonna be all right. Having these conversations in Iowa has me thinking about our hierarchy of values and what we're passing on to the next generations. Clean drinking water is a basic need, and yet some companies making more money takes priority over people in rural communities having water to drink. That is our hierarchy of values. Like we saw with Larry and Emma and Keisha, the vibrancy of rural communities, the loss of a way of American life, and our health have all been eroded by corporate greed. That erosion is another form of inequality. The people who are poisoning the well and those who have to drink from it. The people who have access to water and those who don't. The people who can afford to be healthy and those who can't. When it comes to water, this inequity can make even the most hopeful of us deeply cynical. But cynicism wouldn't want us to celebrate our victories. Like the fact that Iowa CCI has won moratoriums against factory farms in dozens of counties across the state. Like the fact that Iowa CCI is helping us see each other across generations and communities to retain our sense of connection to each other, to the land we live on, and even the water we drink. Water, which connects Iowa to the Gulf of Mexico, connects Flint to Standing Rock, and even to New Jersey, where we'll visit next. If you're looking to get into the fight and dive deeper into the history of the push for clean water in Iowa, head to peoplesaction.org slash podcast to learn more. Thanks so much for listening. To See Each Other is produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe and our production manager is Shelby Sandlin. To See Each Other is sound designed by Pedro Rafael Rosado, original music by the Tang Brothers. 